Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. If you think it's expensive to hire a professional to do the job, wait till you hire an amateur. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew, who is a self-described old cat man. Yes. This week. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm self-employed, that's my official title. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to use that ad at some point. <laughs> that, that's the only way to get sponsorships is to introduce yourself as an old cat man. And they're like, okay, okay. I feel so bad. I will sponsor your podcast. <laughs> uh, Just lovely old cat man. Please sponsor us. That's right. What are you drinking? I'm drinking some Sanguium Arguentanico. Uh, <laughs> it's close. Uh, it's a blood orange beer from Evil Twin Brewing. Sanguine. Uh, Arantiaco? They, uh... Way better than I could. You know, it's 3.25%, and I have discovered that it's best to start the day of recording at a lower... Not not to start at 12%. It usually ends poorly. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would have never thought of that. I'm slowly becoming an adult. What are you so, drinking, you know, Thomas? That beer is 3.25%, which means it's 0.05% over the limit to be sold in grocery stores here. Oh, shit. Because we still have that stupid 3.2 law. And I don't get it because, like, apparently there's like, exceptions where, like, one store in a franchise can sell liquor and stuff. Mm. So the grocery store right by my apartment has, like, a full liquor store. And I'm like, is this seriously the only store in this entire gigantic chain that has liquor? I must have lucked out. I don't know if it's a Jersey rule, but there's like a, a separate like building, like almost like an annex attached if the supermarket has liquor. It's, yeah, that's what they have to do here too. It's like it's but, like a real like, Yeah, that's yeah. weird. Dude, what are you drinking? I'm just drinking Sam Adams Summer Ale. Mm. Uh it's like a lemon lemon wheat ale. Slight, it was in my fridge. I didn't buy it. It was just in there. It's a slight upgrade on kale juice, I have to say. I don't know if that's true. You, I don't know. You drank kale I didn't juice. I have should, any kale juice. I should have brought. If the anyone kale would juice. know, it would be you. <laughs> well, it certainly tastes better. I'll give it that. <laughs> but my energy levels are probably going to go down, not up. So that is the trade-off there. Mm. Anyway, guys, today on the show we have got Adrian Larson back. Adrian, how long has it been since we've talked to you? At least a year, right? At least a year. That's a good question. Um, so like one in ninety-nine years. Yeah, I remember being in the Muse's old office when I talked to you guys last, which was about a year and a half ago at this point. What? So some sometime between a year and two years. So wait, where did the Muse move to then? So we were in the Flatiron neighborhood of New York and just moved uptown a few blocks. Um, we are in the Herald Square area now with much more space. Gotcha. Those names mean nothing to me out here in Colorado, though when you say <laughs> Flatiron, we have some mountains called the Flatirons, which are I mean, beautiful. Don't worry, your Denver apartment is still probably bigger than our office. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many people do you guys have? About 130 employees wow. full-time, and then um, a handful of freelancers and part-timers as well. If you have 130 employees, they're not all there, are they? Oh, yeah, they're all here. Then you're, oh, wow. you're, you're off. No, I'm just kidding. It's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how big the Muse was. 130. That's awesome. Yeah, we've been so we've been going on six years now, and it's a big, big team. Awesome. Well, for, for people who don't know, Adrian is the 
editor at large right now and a founding editor actually of the Muse, which is a really awesome website that has tons of career tips. And you guys also do profiles of lots of companies and show what it's like to work there and kind of how they work, right? Exactly. Um, profiles of six or 700 companies all across the country, in some cases internationally, and talk to employees about what it's like to work there, give a behind the scenes look at the office space. Um, so you can really kind of investigate a company before you even apply, um, learn what they're all about, see if it's the right place for you. Which is awesome. Because before that, I was just like, go to the interview and kind of hope that <laughs> yeah, cross your fingers you is actually representative of the, oh yeah, this is the lobby with all of these really cool bean bags you can take naps in. But once you're hired, here's your cubicle in the yeah. basement. That's right. And <laughs> no closet. one sits in these bean bags or you get fired. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> or no yeah, one we have, we have somebody come in and like perfectly shape them every morning. And if they get moved, you're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, working at the Muse, you've been basically living and breathing career skills and everything related to work for quite a while. So you are definitely the person to talk to because today we wanted to do an episode on basically like how do you figure out what you're worth as an employee and then get paid that amount? Because I feel like a lot of people listening to this are sitting in jobs feeling like they're not actually getting paid what they should get paid or maybe they don't even really know what they should be getting paid for what they do. They just know that what what they're getting right now is not it. Right. Right. So, um, and you really, I mean, this is one of those things that you just really have to take into your own hands. Um, in some cases, I think the very top employers look at what they're paying all of their employees and adjust it regularly and bring people up once their, you know, skills have, have changed or, you know, if the company is making more money or whatnot. Um, most yeah. companies do not do that. And so it really is up to you to understand how much you're worth, um, be checking in with that regularly, you know, once or twice a year based mm -hmm. on, you know, what you've been doing, the skills you've been gaining and, and kind of what position the company is in. And then in, in some cases asking for more money. I'm kind of glad that you said most companies don't do this by default because I feel like as I've been hiring team members, I often feel like pangs of guilt, like, oh no, I haven't talked to this person in a few months about what they're doing and whether or not I should pay them more. So at least I'm not behind the curve. And actually maybe that's kind of a good angle to take it first. Like if you're running a company, how do you make sure that you are nurturing your employees and making sure they're getting paid what they're worth? Because maybe if we look at it from the perspective of an employer, an employee can look at their company and be like, are they doing this or not? Yeah. So a lot of big companies have compensation teams, like people whose job it is to look at all of the roles that are on staff, you know, look at where the company is in the market compared to competitors and then benchmark all of those salaries. Mm -hmm. Um, that, I mean, if, and if you're a big company, it's definitely worth looking into whether there is a compensation team and kind of understanding a bit more about how they come up with their rates and ranges. Um, there's some other great companies out there like Buffer. Have you guys seen Buffer? They I love have radical like a formula. Yeah, radical transparency around how they yeah. pay. Um, that is still you know nowhere near the norm, uh, but there are companies who are starting to think about things like that. And they basically uh, use like mathematical formulas. So it's, your salary basically like updates automatically the longer you've been there, right? Yeah, because part of it's based on tenure. I think it's based mm. on sort of like market rate for um, for the job that you're doing, a little your tenure, 
um, your location because they have employees who are all over the place and, you know, yeah. Denver and New York, for example, have very different market rates. Um, but so that's all right, of that location gets, as a factor. Yeah, right? all of that gets kind of plugged into a formula um, that updates regularly. I'm curious to know what are your thoughts on boiling down compensation into a hard formula like that versus just human to human talking it out negotiation? Yeah, you know. It's hard because I think in some cases it works really well, right? Like if you, you know, for developers, I think there's there's a very standard sort of market rate of what they are paid based on what level they are at. Yeah. Um, for other roles, it can be a lot more fuzzy, especially if you are not, you know, say you're a marketing manager, but you're also doing social media and you're also doing copywriting and you're also doing a little bit of PR, like all of those things have very different kind of skills needed and market rate. Um, mm. And it can be pretty hard to finalize, you know, a number um, that really yeah. encompasses all of those things that you do. And I think tenure is another one, right? Like in some cases it does make sense to reward people for being at a company for, for a long time. In other cases, mm. you know, if you have superstar employees who have only been there for six months, you want to make sure that they are feeling rewarded, um, to yeah. continue doing that superstar behavior, not just, um, you know, to, to stick around for a while. Well, yeah, that's like, I think tenure has been one of the things that's always been a sticking point in my head because having worked at a lot of other companies, I saw people who had been there for years, but they had never really made a huge effort to just like to try to push things forward, to push the envelope. And then you get people who come in and immediately they're like, how can I improve this? How can I become more valuable and make the company better? But they haven't been there for so long. Right. So it's like, there's a lot of tripping points and, and pitfalls around tenure. Cause on one hand, like companies often hire people at a higher salary than people who have been there for five years are making, which obviously feels unfair to the people who've been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. But if you base increases just on tenure, then there's almost like this disincentive to try to push the envelope because it's like, well, it's just based on how long I've been here. Right. I'm going to get a raise at the end of the year anyway. Yeah. So, so it's, it's tough from the perspective of an employer. Agent, how do you actually determine like what your job is worth? I know there are like sites like, I don't know, Payscale or Glassdoor and you could look up like, I don't know, like janitor and it'll say like, well, at <laughs> Facebook janitors make this, but like you said, every role has kind of its own nuances. You may wear multiple hats. Uh, and this is only like anecdotal information. So, yeah. like, for example, editor at large. I didn't even know that was a job that could be had. So how do you determine yeah. what your worth is at the Muse? And is there yeah. an editor at small? Editor at small, yeah. Editor at PM. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, my role is pretty complicated because I'm also only here part time. Um, mm. And there are, you know, figuring out what a part time person is worth versus a full time person is a little bit tricky, too. But I think but this is a good example of a case where there is no one right answer. So to figure yeah. it out, um, I tell people to do sort of a multi pronged approach. So. One is to like go to the salary.coms, the payscale.coms of the world and like do as much research as, as you possibly can there. Like see what the hard data that's been collected by those sites says about your role. Um, to Glassdoor, if you work for, for a pretty big company, Glassdoor has salaries that are um, 
you know, at your company or at companies mm-hmm. like yours. So you mm-hmm. can see kind of real time what people are being paid. And then the third piece that I think not enough people do is talk to people in the industry. Like we all hate talking about our salaries. And in some cases, yeah. it's super weird to ask and tell people what you make. But if you have sort of close people who you can talk to and you can have this conversation with, that's a really, really good way to get some of that more nuanced insight of is what I'm making right now too low, too high, just right, based on what you know about the market and my role and my industry and my company. How do you yeah. broach a conversation like that? In in my team at iHeart, when I used to work there, I was like the money guy. And so I was always just talking about numbers. And then it was like, well, Andrew's talking about it, so it was easy. But you know, your team is one thing. But like you said, if you're networking and meeting other people that do what you do, but you're not like besties seeing him every day. Like that's a pretty rough conversation to start. Yeah. You can't just walk up to somebody and be like, Hey man, what do you do? How much do you make? (laughs) Oh, that's (laughs) it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, yeah. I mean, I think like anything when it comes to career advice, like you're going to get the best information, the more, the most nuanced information and sort of have the the deeper, more personal conversations when you build a relationship with somebody. So this isn't going to be the question that you ask everyone, but it's going to be the question that you ask, like the people who you trust the most, the people who you've known for a while, mm. um, the people that you can have, you know, more than surface level conversations with. Yeah. Well, there are, I mean, even if you talk to one person about it, it's better than no information. Um, you're probably not going to be able to have 17 conversation conversations about it, but if you can talk to one or two people, that's, that is really helpful insight kind of Mm. when you pair it with everything else. How might you, uh, like loosen someone up to talk about it? Cause you probably have like a close friend who you've known for like, however umpteenth years and you just never talked about this thing. Like I don't know, is, is, is like time. It's time we've had the salary conversation, Jane. <laughs> or like, uh, is there like a way that maybe to approach it tastefully? Mojitos. Yeah, I mean, yeah, lots of mojitos. <laughs> really loosens people up. <laughs> Have a big party. No, um, I think you can start by having less touchy money conversations where you're talking about things like, you know, how much you spend, um, or the budgeting tool you use Mm. or, you know, asking for a raise, but in sort of percentage terms, um, rather than like dollar terms and kind of like dip your toe in the conversation that way. Um, Mm. you can also sort of, I mean, I've had friends that I've asked or that they've asked me, you know, yeah, are you comfortable talking about money? And some people will kind of shut up and be like, yeah, I don't really, you know, I don't really want to talk about it or I don't really talk about it outside of, you know, my personal, my family or my partner. Um, but other people I think are equally eager to have this conversation. We'll say, yeah, I don't care. Like I'll tell you how much I make. I don't know. What do you guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys have these conversations all the time. You are you, how comfortable are you? <laughs> Literally when you went to get a beer, <laughs> when you went to get a beer, Andrew and I started talking about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we will see the thing is so Thomas we're, we're and I pretty talk open about it all the time about it, but my biggest fear, like I'm comfortable talking about, but I feel like it's this, uh, who goes first, the person who yeah. goes last feels bad or it doesn't work out. Like, what if you make more? The person who mm-hmm. goes after makes less. Then it's like, uh, what if, you know, they go yeah. first or go second and make more and you make less? I, like, I guess my concern is how to have it not be a competition 
but like right. an educated conversation. Yeah. For me, it's always like a question of like, am I going to make the other person feel bad? Because if Andrew tells me I make one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month, dude, I'm not going to feel bad. By the way, like, I've never told Thomas that because that is yeah, not- <laughs> I, I just totally pulled a figure out of my ass right there because I don't know. Like again, I think a lot of it is like people don't know how comfortable other people are going to be talking about this stuff and. I know personally, if Andrew makes a lot more than me and he tells me that, I'm not going to feel bad. I'm going to feel, one, happy for him, and two, at most, a little bit fired up to step up my own game Mm -hmm. because I naturally, I'm kind of a competitive person, not in like an antagonistic way, but like I feel like if if one of my peers is doing really well, that should push me to get better. Mm. But if I'm having this conversation with somebody else and it happens that I make more money, how are they going to feel? Because I don't necessarily know they're going to feel the same way. They might actually feel diminished or something, or they might feel like for some reason I'm an asshole for making so much money. So I, I don't know. Like that That's my big fear. We're talking about money. It's like, am I going to make somebody feel belittled? Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a way to do it in which that's a possibility. And there's a way to do it in which, you know, they'll feel like you did. And and I've had similar experiences where I've left conversations and felt like, wow, that conversation just lit a fire under my ass to go ask for a raise (laughs) 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 or get a side hustle or make more money. Um, in some way, I think, I mean, I think if it's, if it's approached with education and with kindness and with compassion, it's not approached with like, yeah, well, I brought home $150,000 last month <laughs> <laughs> and how much are you making? Um, you know, you can do it in a nice way. Oh yeah. my God. Speaking of which, let, let's assume that like you're actually making what you're worth because your boss is awesome or you've been awesome and pulled it off. Uh, so you're getting paid what you're worth. How do you make more in your role like like you know get a raise or get promoted like what kind of paths can you take yeah i mean i think if if you are getting paid what you're worth that's awesome um and it's sort of up to you to think about what is what's the next step and like what do you want the next step to be you know is it more money in and if that is the case um you know, gaining skills that can position you for a promotion, asking for a promotion or getting a side hustle are all great ways to make more money. If it's to learn new skills, to have a higher position, um, sort of similarly, like figuring out how you get to the next level, talking to people at your company to figure out what are the skills you need? What are the things that you need to be doing? Who are the people you need to be having lunch with and getting to know um, to get you to that next level? And, um, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to getting a promotion, I always tell people start doing the job before you get promoted, um, make that. So when you ask for a promotion, it's like a no brainer. It's like, obviously Mm -hmm. I'm doing the job or I just give me the title. You've been doing this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the one thing I always worry about is how far can you push before it hurts you as an employee? So Mm -hmm. to clarify that when I think about salary negotiation, I think about it from an entrepreneurial point of view where like say I'm a freelance web developer or something or actually even even more of a true situation like I'm an internet content creator, we sell ads in this podcast. There is definitely an argument to be made that like show X over here and show Y over here charge this much for ads. So we kind of have to like fit into the generally accepted like this is how much a show of our size would charge for these ads. But that aside, as an entrepreneur, my mind immediately goes to value-based pricing. So it's less like 
oh, this is how much what developer makes and more like this is what I can do for you. This mm-hmm. is why this is worth this much because what I'm going to do for you is going to make you this much money or it's going to save you this much time, give you give you time with your family, all these things. That's why I'm charging this much. But as an entrepreneur, if you fail, that's like, okay, you failed to get that one client. There's a bunch of other fish in the sea. But if you already have a job, the fail state is potentially getting fired if you push too hard. So I think a lot of people worry about this. They're like, I am going to piss my boss off or come off as ungrateful by asking for more money. And that might actually like make me lose my job. There's like some loss aversion there that you don't get quite as much of in the entrepreneurial world because you haven't even gotten the client in the first place. Yeah. So where's the line and how do you make sure you're negotiating in a way that doesn't piss your boss off or make you look ungrateful or make you get kicked out? Yeah, totally. So I think, I mean, I think getting fired for asking for a raise happens less than people fear that it does. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where your mind goes, right? To the worst case scenario, like, yeah. oh my God. You want that much? Get out. Pick up your computer and leave. Um, but if you're a top performer, that's not really going to happen. Um, okay. With that said, like there definitely are other consequences if you push too hard. And there's yeah. actually research that out there that shows that women are penalized for this more than men are. Women who ask for a raise can come off as um, aggressive or ungrateful in a way that men sort of saying the exact same lines do not. Um, we actually work with some- as to why that is. You know, I think it's, it has, there's tons and tons of research. And actually I work with a really great negotiation coach who specializes in this. It would be super interesting to have on the podcast. Um, cause she knows this information just inside and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it has a lot to do with like societal norms of what men and women should be like. Um, like men are when, assumed to be assholes. So if men act like assholes, assholes, it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> or okay. aggressive or assertive, whereas women are assumed to be more people pleasing and, um, and submissive and grateful. And obviously these are, you know, broad sweeping generalizations, right. but they play out in very real ways in the workplace. Right. Um, and women, you know, research shows that women, even when they ask for a raise, they get it less than men do. Well, um, let me ask you when you were coached, like how, like, what did she say? Cause I'm, I imagine you've gotten many raises and you seem like someone who gets what she wants, <laughs> but, but I'm sure you didn't do it and everyone hated you as a result. Yeah. So the advice that, that we give on the muse and the advice that she gives are a couple of things. So one sort of, um, backing everything up with data. So the more that you can show, you know, this is market rate and here's where I am and how do we get me closer to this um, versus just saying, how do I get a raise? You position it as like you compared to market Um, or sort of um, Thomas, as you were saying, like positioning it as what you can do for the company, how giving you a raise, giving you a promotion, um, investing in you is going to benefit the company or the team at large, making it about more than just you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier, like top performers usually get what they ask for because they're such a valuable asset to the company that the company is like willing to do what it takes to keep them. So I really think like the first thing that you want to do is ask yourself, how do I become a top performer? Oh my God. How do I make sure that I become one of those people? Like I, I work with several people now and I love every single one of them, but like Martin is my best friend, but also 
he's so good at anything I throw at him. I'm just like, if he left, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if he asked for more money, I would, I would have to very heavily consider that. And I actually proactively try to pay him more as we grow because he's just like one of those people who can basically take anything I throw at him. Adrian. But what if you're, Oh, go ahead. I, 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 I feel like, uh, this, this question needs to be asked. Um, what don't Thomas and I understand about women and and negotiate like what like I I feel like we've talked about this topic quite a lot and and we've gotten like tips, um, but there there's something that we just inherently can't understand. Um, can can you tell us? Like like, yeah. what, <laughs> like I mean yeah. we're, we're literally mansplaining our way through this. Like what what don't we see? <laughs> No, I mean, you're definitely not mansplaining. Um, you are coming at it from from a different perspective and have no way of knowing that like women enter into these conversations in a very, very different way and have um, have a very different reaction than men do. Um, I mean, there's also nuances for whether a woman is negotiating with a man or negotiating with a woman. Ooh, yeah. sorry about that. Um, I was actually curious about that in particular. I'd imagine it actually be harder like, to negotiate with another woman then I, I and but then also I don't know. It's like what what do you yeah. think? Oh, I'm I'm interrupting you constantly. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Pretend like I wasn't talking. Tell tell me like our blind spots here. Yeah, I mean I think just I, again it goes back to the the idea that women and men can say exactly the same words and be perceived in two completely different ways. Um there was there's a great study um, that was done out of um, I think it was HBR um, a long long time ago. But basically, students were given a case study, and the same exact case study about a person asking for a raise. And in one case, um, the story had a man's name. I think it was Henry. And in another case, the story had a woman's name. I think it was Hannah. Um, literally exactly the same words, just the names changed. Mm -hmm. And was given to both women and men. And at the end of the assignment, um, you were asked, you know, what do you think about this person? And Henry was like, you know, assertive, a go-getter, top performer. Um, and Hannah, the woman, was, you know, bitchy and overly aggressive and completely different words were used to describe these people. I am paraphrasing this and I'm probably doing a mm. terrible job. No, I, I think you're doing an awesome a job. Time. Yeah. Um, but basically this idea that the men and women saying the same words and looking, you know, either, either gender looking at this situation, um, so changing nothing but the date, what the name had a very, very big impact. Both women and men perceived yeah. a woman asking this thing as poorly as compared to a man. Mm -hmm. How so, do we change that? Or, or <laughs> like society, how do we change yeah. that? Because it's like an internal perception. So, I mean, maybe it's... Or how do we talk around through behavior it? And, and reactions. Yeah, so I mean, like on a shorter term sense, I'm, I'm curious, like how do, how do you get around that? How do you deal with it? But also, how do we fix it? Yeah, um, we've got a long way to go. I think we have a long way to go. Um, in the, in the gender gap in all kinds of different ways. Um, and the, you know, the best companies are investing in diversity and inclusion training and unconscious bias training and helping people identify these things that they don't even know that they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. and I think the more that we can do that, like both as employees and as employers, um, that will start to make some progress. Yeah. 
Um, and then, yeah, until we're there, um, you know, women going into these conversations with, um, armed with the tools and kind of that knowledge and, and knowing, um, how to, how to get around it or how to work around these, these biases that are there. So I have this, I have this weird concept and I I don't know if it's true or or whatever. and, And I'm hoping you can tell me. Uh, there have been scenarios, and like say when Laura and I were getting one of our apartments, uh, the couple that we were buying it from loved us and could imagine us being the couple that was in the apartment, and I imagine that we got a better deal and perhaps were chosen over other bidders because they liked us. And oftentimes when you know I've applied to a job and I really connected with the person who's hiring me and there were probably other people who may be better qualified in in a broad sense my skills coupled with my personality they they wanted me mm-hmm. and so uh when I when I compare Laura and I which is a a very small subset of men and women you know one in one uh, she is far more likable than I am and far more, far more able to connect with other people. Do you think that there's something to uh, women's uh, like inherent ability to connect that's better than men's in these type of situations? Like, Do you think that uh, being more personable could perhaps achieve the same thing as being just like overtly aggressive and demanding? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's definitely advice that's given to women negotiating as well. Be, um, you know, you can be assertive while being kind of overly pleasant, um, really understanding and asking a lot of questions before you go into the negotiation about, you know, how you could help and what the, what your boss or prospective boss is looking for, what his or her biggest pain points are, how you can help and sort of building that relationship before you go in, um, with the ask. So I'm curious, and this is kind of getting off the gender question for a second. You mentioned that you need to become a top performer mm-hmm. to be in the strongest possible negotiating position. Um, what do you do if you're in a department in a company that is very obfuscated in terms of like delineating between top performers and not top performers? I'm thinking of things like maybe like IT infrastructure where it's an unappreciated department the metrics aren't very concrete. So it's tough to be like, yes, this person is an A person and this person is a B or C like person. They brought in more customers or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause that's, that's the thing that it people always complain about. It's like, they're always cutting our budget because we're necessary, but they don't really get that because we don't bring new customers in. We basically just keep the lights on. But once those systems are set up, the only thing they ever notice is if something goes wrong, if we're right. doing our job, we should be flying under the radar. So if your job is to fly under the radar, how do you demonstrate that you are a top performer in that role? Yeah. So one of my um, my favorite tips um, for people in roles like this is to start a compliment file or a brag file. And basically every time someone says or emails you something that's like, oh my God, you know, especially if you're talking about the people who work in it, you know, Mm -hmm. you make somebody happy and they're like, Oh my God, thank you so much. Um, you, you know, solve this problem for me in 20 minutes. You're always so responsive and reliable. I really appreciate that. Like save that in a file in your folder, in your email, um, and collect it. Um, in -hmm. some cases, like not every case, because this is really annoying, but 
Um, I've seen people forward it along to their boss and say, you know, just, you know, received this piece of praise today and, you know, wanted to let you know that we made them really happy. Um, start collecting those little tidbits um, that show kind of a, qual- a qualitative um, metric that you are great to work with. You're responsive. You are all of the things that make you great at your job. Oh my God. Is there a good way to frame that? Cause like, I, I imagine if I forward it on and say, look at how happy I made this person like <laughs> a little bit confused. It's like, how do you frame it to make it sound a little less self like pat on the back? Yeah. And you can more... also do it in your review. If you do, if you have the opportunity to do a self review, which we do with the mm-hmm. muse, everybody does like their own review and then peer reviews and, and manager reviews and put some of those in your review file. Like those mm-hmm. moments when, um, when you are sort of expected to talk about what you're good at and what you've accomplished over the course of the year. Um, in other cases, I think it, de- it again, depends on the situation. Um, and it will not, it absolutely is not natural for every situation, but, yeah. um, but if you can come up with one that is, um, I think it's great. Or if you've been working on something, say you've been working on like decreasing the time that customers have to wait for their IT support and somebody, you know, sends you a comment about, thank you so much. Like that pointing it back to a goal or a metric and saying, I know Mm -hmm. we've been working on, you know, reducing the customer load time. We're still working on it, but like, here's a happy customer just wanted you to know. So on that thought, um, I'm like obsessed with the GTD, get everything out of your head because you can't possibly remember. And uh, as I would do things at work like that I thought were like meaningful, I would just write like a few sentences because I figured like it helped me do my resume later or whatever. And it became over the course of working that through the year, I just write down all the meaningful things in my MBOs. Like when they're like end of year, like how do you think you did? Because I would literally just copy everything I'd written from this file and just like paste it in and I would have like this essay and I would be done in like five seconds. Um, I think there's a lot to just praise accomplishments, everything, save it because that that's like your leverage in the negotiation and men, men or women aside, like if someone else says you're awesome, like you don't have to pat yourself on the back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think another thing that Adrian brought up, um, you were talking about how if somebody compliments you, during an ongoing improvement project, you know, save that compliment. But also if if you're trying to improve some process or some aspect of your business or department, keep that data too, right? Like if you know, you know, a customer waits on the phone for an average of a minute right now, and then six months from now, we've actually cut that down to 30 seconds. That's something that's quantifiable. You can demonstrate and you can say like, here's the steps that I took. I kind of spearheaded this project and now people are waiting half the time to get Uh their problems solved. They like the company a lot more. Like, you know, I think that's worth an increase in pay. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have to be the one to keep track of that and communicate it. Like no one is doing, no one is paying attention Um, Mm. or maybe they're paying attention, but they're not paying attention in the same way that you can be. You are Mm. the only one who knows kind of what you're doing day to day and how you're improving and how you're reaching the goals. So the more kind of you can keep track of that, the better. Yeah comes to those conversations. I think one of the biggest things that anybody who is an employee can take to heart is your boss is very often not going to notice the improvements you make. And it's not because they are inattentive or they don't care. It's because they hired you to make those improvements, which means that they have 
dedicated themselves to some other task and they have to deal with the same ups and downs and stresses that you have to deal with. So if you make an improvement, who knows, maybe their kid threw up that day or they're really busy on some other project and they just don't notice it, but it's fine because you took care of it. Yeah. You know, and in the day to day business, that's okay because that's what your job is. But when it comes to asking for, you know, an improvement in your station or what you're you're being paid, like you have to demonstrate why the status quo isn't correct because they just never noticed it. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, Andrew, what you do is it's such a great idea, just keeping a running list of everything. And obviously you're not going to necessarily send that running list, um, but pulling out the highlights, pulling out the, like the key points, um, the most impactful points when you're going in for that, for that pay raise or negotiation. Making yeah, a exactly. list into like the story, you know? And mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Fluff, fluffy words and look, <laughs> so you, you, uh, feel like you can't get a raise, you're at the, the peak of what your company can afford, or you just hate your job, uh, I feel like the the only thing worse than asking for a raise is attempting to get a new job, because it's just mm. like, you have to talk to, I don't know, do 20 interviews before, how do you not suck at applying for a job? Like, is there like any way to make this not shitty? Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. I'm so glad you asked. So I think like when most of us think about applying for a job, we have this picture in our head, right? Of like sitting down on the couch for every minute you're not working and like going through indeed.com and applying to everything that is remotely related to what you do hmm. and just like apply, 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 apply. And then going on these interviews and some of them are good and some of them are terrible and just everything about the process feels bad and hard and boring and shitty. Um, So that's the the way to job search that really sucks. I think the other way and the way that we preach, um, we actually just launched a course at the Muse um, on Udemy called the Ultimate Job Search Strategy Course. And it walks you through kind of every step of the process. Um, But step number one is focusing on what you really want. So it's like taking a step back, taking a deep breath and thinking about, what do I want in this next job? What do I what do I want to prioritize in terms of my role? What do I want to prioritize in terms of the, the company and the culture? Is it money? Is it learning? Is it growth potential? Is it a really fancy name on my resume? Is it more time with my family? Um, and then in the role, you know, do I want to be doing the same thing that I did before? Um, what new responsibilities do I want? What do I want to do more of, less of? Getting this all out of your head and on paper, and then focusing your job search on quality um and a few jobs that meet those requirements not quantity and not just casting a wide net and applying for everything that's out there so i think Mm -hmm. like shifting that mindset and starting there takes a whole lot of the suck out of the process because you are actually focusing on things that might get you excited i think you like brought something awesome up in point one where you're like uh what more do you want and I guess the first thing that comes to mind is like, well, I just want to make more money, right? Like that's the whole point of a job. But I think that after like week 1.5, whatever that raise was has completely worn off of your excitement. And now you're just <laughs> either in a shitty job or whatever, you know, maybe you got a nicer apartment. So like what do you, should you look for or like – what other things need to happen besides that incremental raise for it even to be worth it to take another job? Yeah. Yeah. You can't just take another job for the money. Um, and it Mm -hmm. is really, really tempting to, you're like, I'm underpaid. 
I want to make, you know, $20,000 more a year. I could get a bigger apartment. I could propose to my girlfriend or boyfriend. Like I could do all of these things if I had more money. Um, and that might be true, but at the end of the day, that amount of money is not going to be a good thing if you hate what you're doing or if it's not a good next step or if you're going to want to leave that job in six months. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, I think it's getting really clear on what your values are. Um, and some really common ones are, you know, learning new skills and getting more leadership opportunities and working with great people. Um, but for other people, it's things like, you know, being able to do more creative things, being able to have their hands on a whole bunch of different things and not just be siloed in one role. Um, you know, a company that really values work-life balance. Um, I've actually heard of a couple companies in Denver that, um, isn't Burton Snowboards based there? I'm not sure if they're in Denver, but they're definitely close. They're in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. And in the winter, they give everybody free lift tickets. And like, if it's a snow day, they're like, we're not working today, guys. We're going to the slopes. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, for some people, that is worth so much more than, than a few thousand dollar raise. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think it's, you know, it's just going back to like what matters to you and, and not being swayed by like what matters to your best friend or your partner or your parents or coworkers or like what mattered to you five years ago, like what really matters to you now and how can you optimize your next job for those things? Oh my God, Adrian, when you're looking for a job and everyone in your life knows you're looking for a job, all of a sudden, like you said, Everyone has an opinion and everyone wants to oh take my God. company has A or company B. And I think that if you are like this force of will type person, you're like, that's great. Thank you, whatever. But you're going to do what you're going to do. But I think more likely is the case is you're somewhere in the middle or even swayed by what people say. So how do you either respond to that or follow your North Star and not say like your mom's North Star? Yeah, no, it's such a good question. And you're right. Like some people can do it better than others. I definitely was swayed by way too many opinions when I was younger and I'm, and I'm much better about now sort of focusing on what I want and, and taking opinions and insight and gathering, you know, advice and input can be super, super helpful from people, Mm -hmm. especially people who know you really well. Um, but putting that through a filter of, is this really what I want? And so I think going through the process first of identifying like, what made you happy in your last job or your current job? What did you really hate? What are you looking for next? Like spelling it all out for yourself before you start talking to people about it. Um, and again, like you can take input and you can take advice, but really going back to sort of your, what you believe, what your values are. Mm. I don't know. Any, do you guys have any other helpful tips? I'm a force for- of will person. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all about like collecting what other people say and, and it definitely colors my choice. But uh, at the end of the day, like, thank you for your opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess like one thing I would share here, one of my favorite quotes from anybody ever is from Bruce Lee um, when he said, I think it was one of his books. He said this. Adapt what is useful, reject what is useless and add what is specifically your own. Mm. And I try to basically run any kind of advice I get through that sort of filter. And specifically when I hear advice from somebody, I'm always keen to understand what stage of life was that piece of advice helpful for that person. Mm -hmm. Because like, just to give you an example, five years ago, I was a fledgling entrepreneur making almost no money. 
And at that point in time, a piece of advice like DIY everything and prioritize investing time over investing money made perfect sense for me. Like it wasn't worth it for me to go into debt to hire a developer. It was a lot better for me to learn how to code on my own, learn Photoshop on my own, learn all these things on my own. Now the business is scaled. Money isn't so much of an issue. It's my time that's an issue. So if you were to tell me DIY everything, Tom, code your own website, rebuild everything yourself, that's a stupid piece of advice because mm-hmm. I've got something that I can do, make videos or make podcasts that's going to bring in a lot more value to a lot more people. And my friend Martin is a much better coder than me or my friend Ransom is better writing articles than me. So I should delegate because I've got the resources for it. So sounds it, like I'm wearing it's the you same. down. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you really have. Like, I'm not even joking. I, I definitely appreciate all the wearing down you've done when it comes to delegation because Things have changed a lot in my business. But again, I had to evaluate the advice at every stage. Like, am I at the same stage and in the same circumstances as the person trying to tell me what to do? Or were they in a completely different circumstance? Or do they have like the wrong information, the wrong perspective? You know, and you can't always assume that you're going to know so much that you can perfectly evaluate the advice people are giving you. Sometimes other people do know better than you and you should just shut up and listen. But there is a degree of filtering you should do, of scrutiny you should apply to that advice. Totally. And same thing with their kind of values and priorities, right? Like, does this person value money? Does this person value prestige more than I do? Does this person value leaving at 5 p.m. more than I do? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And if so, is this the right advice for me to be listening to right now? That's very true. My girlfriend is very much more like I want to leave at 5 p.m. I've got my own hobbies. I want to pursue those. For me, like prestige and success and, you know, just building an empire matters a lot more. So if you were to tell me one thing, you wouldn't tell her the same thing. Yeah. So and I think that's another thing you have to understand or ask yourself, like, how well does this person know me? Mm. Are they speaking from this is what worked for me or are they speaking from I know you and I truly believe that this is what will make you happiest? Yeah. Okay, Adrian, when we first met you and talked, uh, you were full-time employee, like two or three or zero. One. One. I was going to say zero, one, very close at the (laughs) news. You were at the beginning. Um, And since then, you've been uh, full-time at the Muse, building this company. And when we got on Skype together, I learned that you're only 20 hours at the Muse and you have perhaps another client that you're doing 20 hours for and some other people you're throwing a few hours in for. Um, And initially, the title of this episode was going to be Career Skills. And I almost want to say, like, what the hell is a career? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, when my parents grew up, you worked somewhere for 30 years and then they gave you a pension. They gave you like a medallion. You put that on your desk and then like you, I don't know, play the banjo. Now people (laughs) change jobs every three years. You have multiple jobs technically. What like, what is a career? Is there such a thing? I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. You guys, the smartphone or the Apple iPhone was invented 10 years ago. God. Oh man, that was... All of these Old jobs, like mobile, <laughs> you know, like mobile developers and social media managers and like UX designers, like none of this existed yeah. 11 years ago. It's true, and yeah. now these are some of the most in-demand jobs out there. 
it's wild how fast the world has changed in the past 10 years. Um, so the question is a good one. And I think, I mean, the way that I look at it uh, is a career is it, we need to just look at it and define it very differently than we did 30 years ago. It's not the, you know, sit at your desk and do the same thing for, for 20, 30 years. Um, it's yeah. this compilation of different jobs, different types of jobs, different skills, um, maybe side hustles, maybe, um, freelance projects, maybe two jobs at once, maybe, you know, changing a job every two to three years. Um, it looks very, very different. And sort of, we have to be flexible in the way that we look at it now. I think we can still call it a career. Um, although if you have a better word, let me I, know. I, I think that I do. I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of like these two parallel paths, your career and like you and like all the things you want to do, like play the banjo for the rest of your life. And you're going to work just so that you could play banjo for the rest of your life. And I think that after like the iPhone happened, these paths kind of tilted in and like your career has become like self-actualization. Like you, you're, you're suggesting changing careers because you want to fill in personal gaps and mm -hmm. um, make yourself more fulfilled. Like what if like what you want out of life is actually your career? <gasps> <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. And what if, and what if that changes? Like, what if you want to, you know, you play the banjo as a career for three years and then you decide, you know, I'm the world, the foremost world expert on playing the banjo. Now I want to figure out how to build houses and now I want to figure out how to learn how to code. And, yeah. uh, you know, what if that changes throughout your career? And I think, I mean, the beauty of technology, I think, is that we have access and resources to all of this information out there. And we have inspiration. We have podcasts. We have, you know, people we can look up online at the drop of a hat and we can look at their career paths and be inspired by and then get information about their career paths and the things that they've done. Um, whereas before you might, you know, you, you know, the people in your network, you know what they do, you know what their jobs entail, but that's a very finite group of people. You didn't have access to this like truly world of information and people doing all kinds of different things. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to give a slight counterpoint though. Um, how dare I you. think, I think there's nothing <laughs> wrong with like self-actualization and trying to maybe like merge your career with what you love to do, but there is so much advice out there to go follow your passion or mm. like, I feel like people almost, if they read anything on the internet, they feel like there's this obligation to do that. And like, if your career isn't aligned with your personal interests and passions, then you kind of have failed. So I do want to give the counterpoint. That's that like, like the cart before your career the horse. doesn't have to be what you love to do. Like if you love to play the banjo and you're a sheet metal worker, like you don't have to become a professional banjo player to be fulfilled as long as like if that pays the bills and you have time to come home at night and play banjo, that's also fine. See, I like, suspect Thomas that you love to play the banjo. You love guitar. to play the banjo, guitar, same same thing. <laughs> you you love to same thing. You love to do X after you've done it, and you start to gain some traction, and you start to do well. You know, like I I don't know. I, I feel like there's so I many mean, things that like no, like you don't love to code, and I totally get that. And you're a oh, video I guy. I do love to code. Fine, actually, whatever. I just don't have time for it. You know, my mom doesn't like to code or there, there are plenty of people who don't like to code, but I think that if they did it like for a year solely and found success, they may enjoy 
the feeling of what oh, the yeah. success, you know. And so, like, the passion. Yeah, competency brings enjoyment a lot of the time. So maybe the formula is like competency breeds passion, fuel passion. I don't know. I mean, I think, again, it goes back to, like, what are you after, right? Mm, like, yeah. you also, when you look at, you know, I love banjo playing, and I want to be a banjo player. You have to look at, like, what is the lifestyle that comes with being a banjo player? So I love That's to true. cook, for example. I could never handle the lifestyle of working at a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it is not the career path for me. Um, I can do it in other ways. I can do it in my spare time or I can start a cooking club at my office or I can write about cooks or food or figure out other ways to incorporate it into my life. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is there is this sort of like rhetoric out there that's like follow your passion or like have this like corporate drone job. Um, yeah. And there's not, you know, there's it's like black or white, but there are so many options to figure out how all of the pieces of your life and your personality and your passions and your values kind of all work together. And one thing I had discovered is that even if you're not going to become a professional banjo player or a professional chef, it is not necessarily just the specific activity that you're doing that is your passion or that it defines what you like to do. There are also qualities that work. So you could take two banjo players or two musicians of any kind. Um, and actually, my friend Nick is a good example of this. Nick and I both play the guitar. But Nick loves to sit there and learn how to play established songs that people have already made. He's not into improv. He actually says improv gives him anxiety. He would much rather figure out how to play like Stairway to Heaven perfectly and then do that. Me, I hate learning to play other people's songs. Like I have no patience for it. I sit there and I literally teach myself scales by ear. I don't look them up and I make up my own songs and I play improv every single day. So like you can pull attributes out of those two experiences. This person loves to perfect an established recipe and become a practitioner. And this musician, me in this case, loves to create things from scratch and be really creative and make up new stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you can find another job, say coding, where you can apply those attributes, maybe I'm somebody who makes up a brand new idea and codes that from scratch. And it's probably kind of crappy at first, but we get it working. And then Nick is also a coder, but he's like, I'm going to debug the shit out of this until it's perfect. Mm. And I know exactly how to make it perfectly up to standards and it's fast and it performs well. Like that is brilliant. So you can, that is so true. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good analogy. So yeah, <laughs> just just close the episode out. This yeah, just like yeah, I, we we have nothing else to add after that. Done. <laughs> that was excellent, though. I I absolutely agree with you. Cool. Well, I think we we probably have given people a a, a good bit to chew on mm. in this episode. So if you were serious about that, Adrian, if you have nothing else that we that is just like burning in your mind that you have to add, then yeah, we can close it out. Yeah. I mean, this has been great. Um, I love talking about this stuff and I think if there's, if there's anything else to add, like so just to go back to sort of the, the money aspect of this episode, like make it a point to review your salary with mm-hmm. yourself at least twice a year. Um, or anytime the company has gone through a major transformation or your role has changed in some significant way, I think yeah. twice a year typically covers it for most people. But, okay. um, you know, just to make sure that you are really paying attention to this stuff because again, nobody else is going to do it for you. Damn yeah. Right. I think it is good to regularly check up because a lot of people get to the point where they're pissed. Yeah. And I think a little bit of mindfulness is going to like, 
it's going to let you do that gut check before you ever get to the point where you're starting to feel unappreciated. So yeah, put it on your calendar once every six months, ask yourself, am I getting paid what I'm worth? Yep. And the other thing I do want to mention before we close out real quick, something you, you mentioned earlier, it's not just about the salary. It's also about maybe work-life balance or being able to take on a new role or being able to go snowboarding when it's on a snow day or something. Like if you go into a negotiation thinking you can only ask for more money, then you're closing your mind off to a lot of possibilities. Because mm. if you're a full-time person like you, you're working mm -hmm. part-time now. They didn't just say like, oh, well, you want to do something else. You're, you're gone. No, they said, wow, you're a top performer. You've been doing so well. We understand you want to grow into something else and change, but keep working with us. So you've been able to negotiate something that works well for you now. And it isn't just money. Yeah. And there's plenty of people who, who do things like that, whether it's, you know, work from home days or a different type of role or splitting your time between one department and another, um, or kind of going into a management training program or whatever. Um, there are lots of different types of things, um, that you'll never know if you can do until you ask. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Andrew, do you have anything else to add before I do my outro spiel? Nothing. Ah, yes, awesome. I do. Um, <laughs> so this company that Adrian uh, is starting, it's called Sweet Spot Content. And you should go to sweetspotcontent.com um, and see what it's all about. Oh, yeah. Is there anywhere else people can connect with you online? Social profiles you want to? Yeah, for sure. LinkedIn. Um, Adrian okay. Granzella Larson. Um, you can also find The Muse on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now our ultimate job search course on Udemy, um, which is a great resource if you are like starting the job search from scratch, have no idea where to start, are feeling overwhelmed, or just want like an extra kind of set of hands to guide you along the way. It's a really great resource. Adrian, do you have cool. equity in the muse? I do. Yes. Damn right. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I was the first employee. Of course I have equity. Yeah. Actually, every employee at the muse has equity. That's really cool. Oh, really? Still? That's yeah. awesome. Still, everybody does. But you right have on. the most. So we are all, I do not have the most. <laughs> we are all invested in, in building the company, um, which is really awesome that it's something we've been able to continue. That's a great way to be. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you have questions about how to develop further in your career or about personal finance in general, you can always shoot us an email over at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com or check out our list of our favorite books and tools and apps and other resources for improving your life over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. And for those of you who are getting into investing and maybe getting a little more advanced, Andrew has coded up a tool for um, evaluating real estate properties. So if that's something you're interested in, simplewealth.co is the new URL for that tool. Andrew has been like majorly upgrading that recently. I don't so sleep anymore. I got to talk about it. Yeah. Andrew can't sleep. So I have to do the outros and Hey, <laughs> if you enjoy this show. Then, uh, one thing that definitely helps us out and that we massively appreciate is reviews and ratings over on iTunes. So if you have the podcasts app on your iPhone or you have five minutes to pop over to iTunes on your computer, just give us a rating review. Let us know how we're doing. That helps us to improve the show. Let's us know what we're doing right and wrong. And it also increases our rankings and shows the show to more people, which helps us to grow and build our audience. So thank you so much if you do that. Thank you for listening in any case. And we'll see you next week. Later, guys. Later, man.
please tell your friends about this show. <laughs>